The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Hey there, I am so excited to introduce a new episode format that we will be mixing in alongside with our listener question episodes that we call Sparked Hot Takes. So these Sparked Hot Take episodes, they focus on one big issue in the world of work, something deeply relevant to you, to me, to all of us. We'll dive into the angles and nuances with an expert member of the Sparked Brain Trust, teasing out the real questions, the nuanced assumptions, the parts no one else talks about, and what we can do to make work and life better and more alive. In today's first ever Sparked Hot Take, we're taking an unusual look at what it's like to lead in this complicated, often upside down moment, and how leaders themselves are struggling with their own humanity. At the same time, they're being asked to take care of those they lead and deliver bottom line results in a world where both often feel near impossible. And deepening into this conversation on leadership and humanity is Sparked Brain Trust Advisor Karen Wright. Karen is the founder of Parachute Executive Coaching, acclaimed executive coach advisor to senior leaders for more than two decades, and the author of two great books, The Accidental Alpha Woman and The Complete Executive. Enjoy this sparked hot take on leading and humanity and a time when both can sometimes feel hard to access. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. So excited to be able to explore just more topical deep dives with our Spark Brain Trust, with you. You have been, um, you've been doing some really deep thinking and expansive writing on 
what's happening to leaders in sort of like the modern day workplace? And it's been interesting, right? Because a lot of the focus, I think in the popular media these days and yeah, like new media, everything has been what's happening to the workers? How do we make better decisions? Mm -hmm. And how are they being treated? And the great resignation and the great regret and the great reinvention. And there are a lot of greats happening, but it's all focused on sort of, you know, like the people who form the teams, the team members. And it's almost like the conversation doesn't want to talk about leaders because it's kind of like, it's not their time. Okay. So let's not go there. And you've been doing a lot of deep thinking and writing and talking about, no, 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 no. Like actually we really need to, to bring them into the conversation because they're part of the future of the way that the workplace looks and also they're human beings. Where do you want to jump into this? Because there are a couple of different places we could dip in. What feels like a good starting place for you? Well, leader as human being is my favorite, but I would offer that the not only has the focus been on workers because maybe it's not leader's time, but in fact, I feel like a lot of popular press wants to blame leaders for everything that's going wrong with work these days. And that just can't possibly be true. Um, and so, you know, leaders as humans, leaders as influencers slash controllers of what work looks like and what the future needs to look like for leaders, I think. Yeah. Who are leaders anyway? So let's start out with that blame game thing, because I think that is what we're seeing a lot um, mm-hmm. in the popular conversation right now. What's the story that you're seeing being told that, that you feel is either limited or completely not right? Or like, what are you seeing happening in terms of like people pointing fingers back at leaders? Yeah, I'm, I'm hearing people accusing leaders of not understanding what's really true and what's really going on and what people are really feeling as if leaders were intentionally making decisions that are unpopular. And I have never met a leader who purposefully said, I'm going to decide something that I know everybody will hate. That's just not how it works. So I think that we're collectively missing the idea that for the most part, people in positions of power are doing the best they can. And I mean, it works across a wide spectrum. But I just I just don't know anyone who's got a lot of responsibility who's doing anything other than the best they can with what they've got. So I think we're missing that. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting also, right? And it, it tends to be, I almost think that the, the foundation for that is once someone rides into, rises into a position of leadership, then we have this chasm. Now it becomes us versus them. And, and understandably, like there is a dynamic and sometimes there are somebody is chosen from among a whole bunch of candidates and people have various feelings about that, um, especially if you're one of those candidates who was not asked to rise into leadership, um, but still remains on a team and then is being led by somebody who was the day before somebody who worked with shoulder to shoulder for years or decades. Mm-hmm. There, There's a lot of complex social dynamics that goes into a leadership position, right? So I think we kind of start there and sometimes, you know, like immediately it becomes this oh now they're different type of thing and and in a way like they are different but, but I, I'm actually curious on your lens on like wh- what's this the internal shift psychologically that often happens when somebody rises into that position and realizes well I have to function differently to do this different job um, and how do mm-hmm. I deal with that I mean it's important to understand that they're not a different person but they have a different responsibility and a different role. And so to tease those apart a little bit and say, okay, so this is the person I know. I understand their values. I understand what's important to them. I'm, and now I need to take their guidance differently than I might have had to yesterday. But for me, the model here is something that Brene Brown talks a lot about, which is the difference between power over and power with. And so a really um, 
a good leader will say, we are in this together. And the leader looks to serve the people that report to them. And the leader sets a vision, but but brings people with them as opposed to trying to exert power and and wield control. And I think, you know, getting back to what's going on with work today, I feel like there's this this need for control bubbling up from the lower levels of organizations and it's bumping up against that power dynamic. And I think there's real, real tension, unproductive tension happening there. Yeah. Control what? Yeah. I mean, the people feel like there's an attempt to control the people. And as you know, and you know, anytime we're confronted with uncertainty, our first impulse is to look to see what we can control. And the leaders that I know are trying to control the spending, the results, the, you know, they're not really trying to control the people, but the people are the mechanism through which work gets done. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting also, right? Because on the one hand, you look at organizational dynamics, team dynamics, leadership dynamics, going back generations, and there've always been issues. Like some of these things have been here forever, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it does make sense to tease out, you know, like there's, there is a, a dynamic that has, that's different over the last few years. And it's not that the old dynamic is gone. It's that we're compounded. We've compounded profound uncertainty where the stakes are literally life or death. I mean, literally, literally human yes. life or death and organizational life or death on top of whatever function or dysfunction had existed in an organizational culture before that. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You know, like if you if you take that and, you know, even in before times, it's, you know, you're sort of doing what you can to try and you know, like meet whatever the quote KPIs are that, you know, are matter most. That when you then layer on like existential crisis on every level, the need for a leader to try and control what is controllable um, goes up dramatically in, in no small part because they don't want the whole thing to go away. Well, and, you know, a lot of people have a whole lot of vested interest in leadership staying in that conventional model, which is very hierarchical and very control based and very power based. And sociologically, we you know we're we've been evolving this last I don't know how many 10, 20 years or so around let's be more collaborative and let's flatten things and and let's hear more feedback that sort of thing you know feedback is kind of a new phenomenon really in terms of I'm going to give you information about how you're doing such that you can make changes I mean that in and of itself I think is a dynamic that didn't always exist in the conventional sort of leadership power structure so yeah lots of lots of change sort of anthropologically sociologically and then layer on a pandemic and then layer on social justice issues and you know like the whole thing is just it's just it's just kind of exploding yeah. So you, you spend a lot of your, um, your quote day job working yeah. with senior leaders and, and you have for, for enough time so that you really see the arc of how different environments and circumstances mm-hmm. affect them. Paint a picture for me. Like, what are you seeing in the life of a leader like these days that they are grappling with on a professional level, on a personal level that Maybe we're not telling that story or even seeing it or acknowledging that it exists. One of the most stark examples I experienced or was confronted with was um, someone that I was working with uh, before the pandemic started. And this individual is head of supply chain and logistics for a very big retail organization. And overnight, this person's function was asked to produce 50% more to put 50% more through the system. So you've got a business challenge, a significant, difficult, complex business challenge. Add to that that this person uh, had school-age kids 
but all of a sudden we're at home and having to deal with all of that. Add to that that they had aging parents who were very vulnerable to illness and in fact did get sick. Add to that, back to the business challenge, to put 50% more throughput into this system when the system in fact got reduced by about 25% at any given point in time because of disease pockets, right? And so you've got the most complex business situation ever layered on with some really challenging personal dynamics. And this person is supposed to be the strong one across all of those fronts. And no human being has that kind of capacity for long. We might be able to summon it up. You know, I, I, I read a lot at the time about our surge capacity. And so we were all tapping surge capacity. And leaders like this person were particularly tapping surge capacity. But at some point, that gets depleted. And yet there's been no recovery time. There's been no opportunity for most of these people in big, really responsible roles. There's been no opportunity for them to recover. So what do you do with that? I mean, where... Uh... Because mm-hmm. we're in that moment still. I think we're emerging in, in certain ways, like certain things are getting freed up, though we're still very much in the thick of it. Um, and I think in the, we're, we may not be in the deepest part of the pain, but, but you know, we are not out of it. Um, so for that one person you just described and for the thousands or millions of others who have their own version mm-hmm. of the scenario you just painted. You know, what, one of the things that also I wonder about when you describe that is... I feel like so much leadership training is about the skill of mm-hmm. leadership or the domain of leadership. Like here's the body of knowledge that you need to to become an effective and good leader. Here are the fundamental skill sets that you need, right? Which are largely around motivation and productivity. And what I, what I don't see a lot of is here are the psychological and emotional practices mm-hmm. That would help you move through really hard, challenging times with high stakes, sustained uncertainty with more equanimity so that you can not only lead more effectively, but function as a human being through those moments. Uh, is that just me from the outside looking? And you have much more of an inside. Almost every leader I've ever worked with has has enjoyed my stance on meditation and mindfulness. Uh, I talk about it with almost everyone, whether I call it that or not. My invitation is always develop some sort of reflective, quieting, centering practice because you need it. Because every day you need to be sure that you're making the decisions that are pointing your whole life in the direction you want it pointed, that you're not buffeted about by the various forces that play on you all day, every day. And so a mindfulness practice, in my view, is the number one survival strategy followed closely by physical exercise, because you've got to have strength and you also have to be able to release tension. And those things are the self-care, yeah, right? That's and, and, the take care of the machine um, before anything else. Yeah, uh, 100%. I mean, I'm running two businesses right now and they're small businesses, but um, without a years long practice, I mean, right now, things are tough mm-hmm. as it is. Without a years long practice, I don't think okay. it'd be functioning um, because, you know, all the things that we've been talking about and, you know, like one company is effectively a startup and the other companies, you know, like been going on for a decade, but still, and I'm not the only one who's failing this, but I, I can't imagine moving through this season of my life and business without having some sort of practice to lean on both interventional and sustained. And I think that to mm-hmm. me, there's a difference. I'm curious whether you feel the same way. Like, to me, my mindfulness practice, you know, it's, it's like, When's the best time to start a mindfulness practice? Well, 10 years ago, when's the next best time today, right? With the understanding that it's not going to, you know, if you're in a freak out moment, it's not going to help you in that moment if you just started yesterday. (laughs) It's this practice where over a sustained amount of time, it just changes the quality of how you move into experiences. 
it allows you to sort of like breathe through them more easily, be less reactive, to find center, to act, to notice mm-hmm. what's true more easily. Um, so I look at that as more of this like sustained, sustainable type of practice. And then there's more of the interventional thing. And I think exercise can yes. be both, you know, right? It can be over time, it sort of like changes the way that we were wired. And actually exercise really pro- powerfully affects your brain. But also it's one of those things where like if, if you're in a rough place in the moment and you go out and like whatever form of movement is available to your unique circumstance, you engage in it in the moment, mm-hmm. it also creates a really powerful shift. Do, do you see sort of like the, those two layers as well? Well, that conversation about what are you doing to take care of yourself is is happening in almost every conversation I'm having with every leader because they do get so swept up. And I talked to someone this morning who said, yeah, these things are crazy right now. And I'm also planning a wedding, dealing with a medical issue, you know, and those things are falling to the bottom of the list. So I agree. I, the, both the sustaining practice and the uh, intervention kind of practice, I think, are important. Um, you know, getting back to the client I talked about at the top, the, the person running the retail supply chain, um, early on when we were doing our coaching sessions, he said, just so you know, we won't be on Zoom. I'll be on my phone because I'll be out walking and you might hear squeaking because I'll be on the swings at my kid's school. And so there he was, senior VP in his mid forties, having you know having a swing, and it was for him. It was not only fresh air and movement; it was fun. He got twenty minutes to play, and that went a long way towards his mental state. So wait, was yeah. was he on the swing, or no, no, was he, he was pushing his kids on? No, the he swing. was sitting on the swing. The kids weren't at the school. Oh yeah, right? I love that. There were no I kids love at that. the school because it was <laughs> pandemic. But he, there he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is I know, fantastic. I I'm being called to find the local <laughs> playground right now. <laughs> it really worked. Okay. So if these practices are really important, um, and whatever your version of that to sustaining yourself in a leadership role right now, are you seeing, okay, you work a lot individually with leadership. Are you seeing organizations get behind supporting the emotional and psychological well-being of leaders in this way or other ways in a way that is beyond sort of like basic lip What service. we're seeing is that organizations are trending towards putting what I'll call programmatic things in places, in place, whereas employees are craving relational support. Re- employees will say mm. that they're making these, you know, great resignation type decisions because they don't feel valued and they don't feel seen and heard and they don't feel like they have strong connections and support. Um, and companies are, you know, funding their home office and, you know, they're putting these programmatic things in place. Um, and, and there's a gap there. And so the, the human need for work or the, what humans want from work, I think has shifted. Not enough organizations are sort of seeing that and working to support it. I'm not sure exactly how you can support that kind of need, but certainly the kinds of conversations leaders need to be having with their people are different now than they were a few years ago. So I'm going to put you on the spot then. You said, I'm not sure how you support that kind of need in a perfect world with all the resources available. What are some ideas that pop into your head? I mean, I think first you have to actually understand what's really mm-hmm. happening. So awareness to me is is ground one. But you know, like beyond that, once you acknowledge, okay, so there, there is no going back to the way things were. There's a mm-hmm. new reality that's happening um, and, and this is what's going on. And like, we're really trying to understand it rather than trying to figure out how to understand it in the name of putting things back the way they were. We're just trying to understand it first and foremost, what's really happening here. 
where do we go from there in a way that acknowledges everybody's humanity? Um, like what uh, are there steps or ideas or things? That I mean, come to for mind? me, it can be as simple as starting every single meeting, whether it's in a group or one-on-one starting every single meeting with, how are you? What's going on with you? Not, not, not the work. Let's not talk about the work. Uh, but let me, let me find out about you. What's important to you. How are you feeling? Are, is your family? Okay. Yeah. Just to have that moment of human connection before we, move into work. I'd love to see some flexibility on deliverables. So one of the things I wrote recently was an invitation. I'd love to meet the CEO who can stand in front of their board and say, we're not going to hit the numbers this quarter and maybe not next quarter because I've dialed down the expectations. My people are tired. They need a break. I can't get them to produce the way they need to produce to do this. So we're not going to hit the number. Um, And no CEO in a publicly traded company really has that option. But I would love to meet the CEO who's got that kind of courage to say, no, no, we're changing the expectations because the people don't have that in them. I mean, it's interesting. You say no CEO has that option, you know, and 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 classically, it's like, like, what is the charge? You know, especially in a public company, maximize shareholder value. You've got to hit your numbers. If you don't, the market basically mm-hmm. punishes you for it. But I imagine a scenario where a CEO says that not only to the board, but to, you know, like all of everyone who's gathered on a, on a reporting call. I would love that. And, and uh, okay, on the one hand, like, you know, the market's like, okay, so they're missing their numbers. But I have to imagine that the positive buzz, the spin that comes out of like, now all of a sudden, all the stories about the company are not just X, Y, and Z miss their numbers. Now, like all the stories and all the channels are going to be X, Y, Z, CEO made a conscious choice to value the humanity of the people who are making this entity's existence possible, knowing that it would hurt their numbers um, for the short term, Mm -hmm. but really be in service of the human beings. Like, I I have to imagine that that story alone would be so much bigger than, oh, they missed their numbers. I I hope (laughs) it would be. I think it would be. And uh, please, please let it, let there be one so we can learn. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. But we just we we've got this business culture of more and more and more and more, and that's the hard, that's the hard thing to turn around. And particularly when you think about how many businesses suffered in this last few years. And so, of course, there's a real groundswell towards well, we've got to recover from that. And you know, to your point earlier, I don't know that recovery in that pure form ever really happens. And the cost is huge, right? And. And, and the notion of business recovery without human recovery seems to become, that seems to be sort of like mm-hmm. the norm right now. Like we like the business can recover and the humans will figure it out. And in fact, that's not reality. I mean, humans are the business <laughs> in most cases, right? And so right. there is a long-term cost of that, I think. I mean, not to mention that there are businesses. So again, this client that I was dealing with this morning in a business, which is one of those that's having real trouble hiring. And so there are huge gaps throughout every major function in this particular business. And yet nobody's changed the expectations, right? Nobody's modifying the um, commitments to the client and nobody's communicating that the financials might look different. And yet they've got, you know, and this is, I don't know how many people in this company, let's say seven or 800 people in this company. I think they have 50 openings in client facing kinds of roles. And that's got to have an impact. And it's then, and the other people just can't possibly fill the gaps. So, you know, not only are we being asked to deliver more, 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 but we're having to do it with less because we don't have the people. So again, it's just such a, such a toxic cycle. Yeah, it really is. And I feel like 
I'm trying to figure out like, what is a scenario where like, what, how, how do you break a cycle? Right. Generally cycles mm-hmm. don't just sort of like naturally or organically um, right. and slowly shift. Like there's something that happens. There's an inciting incident that says, this is the old, this is the new. Um, I mean, they can slowly morph in, in certain ways, but when there's something which is sort of like so fundamentally toxic at a core level mm-hmm. and culture and systems and process and leadership and expectations and promises have all been built around certain toxic assumptions, then, yeah, I, I mean, what, what a thorny issue. And, and then you have often leaders within that system who see this and who acknowledge mm-hmm. it and who, are, um, who really don't want it to be that way. And yet, you know, it's like trying to, you know, like make a, a hard left turn with this like massive ship that's been going in yeah. one direction for a really long time. Can you actually change something like that with small incremental changes without some sort of large scale creative destruction event? Um, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I like to think that when really valuable people opt out, when they decide to leave, I would like to think that there's some reflection that happens. I don't know that that's true as often as I'd like it to be. But, but you know, from my perspective, if you're really, really valuable people start leaving, I would want that to be a cause for reflection at the, at the senior leadership level, at the company level. Other than that, I believe that everybody, I mean, every individual has the power to behave in a way that they would want others to behave. Anyone who's managing people has an opportunity to manage them whatever they deem to be a human way. You know, you don't have to buy into the, because I'm higher than you on the ladder, I've got more power and therefore I'm going to use it. So, you know, we all have choices and I would just love for more people to choose humanity and kindness and compassion and patience, just even just a little more often. Yeah. And and maybe that's actually the starting point, you know, maybe if it, if, if the notion of something big and, and look, we're, we're two solid years into this experiment where, you know, like everything's been turned upside down and there's a mass fleeing of the way things were and, there still seems to be the dominant culture of let's rush back as, as soon as humanly possible to the, to the way things were. So if that alone isn't causing the shift that, you know, like we would love to see um, a rehumanizing of organizations and and Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time studying nonviolent revolution dynamics and theory. Mm -hmm. And Gene Sharp was the person who sort of like, like wrote, you know, like really wrote the pamphlet that so many people who created mass change have used and, one of the things that he said that has always stayed with me, he's like, the um, effective nonviolent revolution, a lot of times one of the biggest mistakes that people who really seek big profound change make is they make the center of the rally cry down with X, X being the current system, paradigm, oppressor, leadership, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And it's all about toppling that. And you've got to make sure that goes away. He said, that's actually really ineffective. Um, it, it rarely ever works. What's more important is to understand that if you, if you build something in its place that solves the problem, that is so much more appealing mm-hmm. for so many people for what he called the pillars of support for the old paradigm, that those pillars one by one start shifting to this new thing, whether that old thing exists in name or just completely crumbles under its own, like mm-hmm. because it no longer has those pillars under it, it kind of doesn't matter. But it's, you know, his argument was, it is more about getting really clear on what is it that will remove the suffering, the pain? What does that new paradigm, that new offering, that new solution look like? 
focus more on building that. And sure, like you can message as part of it, you know, like there's this other thing which is causing current suffering, but the goal is not so much to change or bring that down. It's to build something new in its place that is so much more solution oriented and genuinely solves the problem that people can't not move to that. And then that's where all the, where the power goes becomes the dominant paradigm, the one that carries forward. I love that. I mean, the coach speak on that would be, are you running towards something or away from something? Mm, And running towards is always more powerful. Um, It's always got more positive energy around it. And I think partly what's going on in the world of work these days is, you know, people were thrust into their families and, and really cocooned for a couple of years. And there's not enough running towards available when it comes to going back to the office and working in the old ways. So there's a, the need for community isn't as significant now because I've built more community at home and I've, I'm able to take care of my life and my family differently by being present at home more. And so therefore there, there just, there isn't that compelling draw back into the historical infrastructure. Mm, yeah. So I think where we're, where we're kind of leading here is I feel like we're issuing a bit of a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I hope. Um, or an invitation, call it an invitation instead of a challenge, mm-hmm. you know, like for, for folks to say, okay, so, what is that like? What are the qualities of that reimagined future? Can we actually create some or all of that in our existing paradigm using our resources, our structure, our leadership, our people? Can we like? Can we even run an experiment? Can we literally have like a Skunk Works team or division that just says like this is a future of work within our organization, Skunk Works? Like that the only outcome is to test different ideas about how I to gather and manage and lead and produce and create together. Or does it look like something entirely different? But I think the invitation we're both sort of like walking towards is what would that something new look like that would be, that would so solve for what people now are looking for and valuing, Mm -hmm. which is very different than it was just a few years ago. And then like, what is a brave first step that you might take towards making that real? Yeah, the brave first step, I think if more people can just take one of those and see what happens. Um, I do think there needs to be collectively way more creative conversations about what work can be. And getting back to the sort of the place we started here is what is the role of the leader in that? Because I think that at its core, the, the role of the leader has to change, has changed, whether we whether we like it or not, whether we've noticed it or not. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and centering human value in all of this. Yes. hundred percent. As like, th- this is where we start from. Karen, mm-hmm. always so good to jam. Um, love sort of like diving deep into topics and for our amazing, fantastic listening community, we will be doing more of these topical deep dives on a regular basis. If you have a topic, you would love our brain trust to dive into, to dissect, to offer ideas around, please do share it with us and we'll see if we can work it into the mix. Thanks so much, everybody. We'll see you next week. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation, learned a little something about your own quest to come alive and work in life, and maybe feel a little bit less alone along this journey to find and do what sparks you. And if you'd love to share your own moment and question with us, we would love to hear from you. Just go ahead and click on the submissions link in the show notes to get the details on how to do that. And remember, if you're at a moment of exploration, looking to find and do or even create work that makes you come more fully alive, 
that brings more meaning and purpose and joy into your life. Take the time to discover your own personal Sparkotype for free at Sparkotype.com. It'll open your eyes to a deeper understanding of yourself and open the door to possibility like never before. And hey, if you're finding value in these conversations, please just take an extra second right now to follow and rate Sparked in your favorite podcast app. This is so helpful in helping others find the show and growing our community so that we can all come alive and work in life together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Sparked.